A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Hear me? Can you hear me on the phone? I've got you coming out of every orifice. (laughs) I'm really not, you're breaking off quite badly. Hello and welcome to The Lock-In, where I finally get to talk to people I want to hear from in a place I want to be, the pub. For some reason this bloody thing has started playing back some rubbish. Oh, right. Where were we? I forgot. I have two. Well, we're locked in today with Michael Burley, distinguished historian and the author, most recently, of The Days of the Assassins. Michael, what's your favourite assassination story? Oh, well, the one the one that will be in the chapter that most people will skip, which is the chapter on Africa, because depressing number of my readers of all my books never bother reading the Africa chapter although it's actually the one because I always begin my books in the middle it's always the one that's in the middle and I work back and forwards when I write anyway I would say that the two attempts to kill Hendrik Vervoort in 1960 that was um, by a millionaire English farmer who shot him in the face at the Rand Agricultural Show in fact he went in his chauffeur driven Rolls Royce to do the deed and then six years later a Greek Mozambican ex-merchant seaman got a job as a messenger in the South African Parliament um, and he um, walked up to Vervoort during the state opening of Parliament and stabbed him in the chest. Both men were technically uh, ruled insane although they gave very you know rational reasons to kill him they just didn't like apartheid and the first one uh, was put in a mental asylum and allegedly ha- hanged himself after a year the second one was sort of multiply tortured until he came out with the right story of his insanity because he had indeed been in about nine different asylums in six different countries in the preceding 20 years. It was partly his way of staying in a country as a seaman, which he couldn't. And he early on discovered from an Irish inmate that if he said something interesting, the shrinks would really get excited. So he said, I have a tape- tapeworm in my stomach giving me orders. And that always worked. So, for example, he went to a shit asylum in Paddington and uh, he rolled out this story because he knew there was a luxury asylum on the Isle of Wight and they did indeed transfer him there. This is all in his medical records. And Anyway, the South African uh, security police tortured him until he came out with the story that because they'd got hold of his medical records. So he said, oh, well, a dragon tapeworm told him to kill Vervoort. 
Now, they did find him insane, but interestingly, they first of all put him on Robin Island in solitary confinement next to Mandela. They never met. And then he was put in uh, Pretoria Central Prison next to the execution chamber. So every year he heard 100 people being hanged through the walls. And uh, at a very old age, he was finally sent to a rural mental hospital where he died. But again, he gave very reasonable grounds to kill Vervoort. Now, that would be a comical story were it not for the fact that at the heart of it is something rather serious. Oh, God, yeah. I mean, with both both men. I mean, they, they genuinely abhorred apartheid. The Greek guy came from a sort of family with a whole involvement with the Cretan communist resistance, you know, to the dictate, to the royalist dictatorship and to the Nazis, etc. And he was very ideologically committed. But, and yet he could easily have also been quite mad. I couldn't, I couldn't make my mind up about that. These idiot accidents which happen, happened in Trotsky's case as well with a drunken bus conductor. Well, I, I mean, they were, they were the most... I mean, if, if, if I were to be the subject of an assassination, the ones I would least like on my case would be the Soviet NKVD because it was just mind-boggling. When you looked at the, the deep layers of cover that these men and women constructed for themselves and they were real killers they you know they'd rocked up on the republican side in spain killing uh, both trotskyites and captured francoist people you know they were murderers and it was a husband uh, sorry a mother and son team that went after trotsky she was in fact the mother was the um, who was a cuban aristocrat she was the getaway driver and it was her younger son ramon who was a professional killer who went in the end off trotsky with the ice pick but then, again, the interesting story is after he's caught, because he was bashed up and caught, he got a 20-year jail sentence in Mexico. And I think for six hours a day, six days a week, for six months, Mexican psychiatrists and criminologists interviewed him about everything, like his dreams. You know, they got him to do psychometric tests in dark rooms or to assemble, disassemble a rifle, all that. You know, like a robot, basically. And they only got down his, you know, he, when he killed Trotsky, he was calling himself Frank Jackson. and The NKVD left out the K in Jackson. And then they got down to his previous identity, which was Jacques Mornard, a Belgian playboy, which is how he seduced and got into Trotsky's circle via one of Trotsky's secretaries. But there were three more identities below that. So when he was talking about his dreams or his complex about his mother or father, he really was describing what he felt and had dreamed, but not him. And then eventually a Spanish policeman went on holiday to Spain about 10 years later and had a mugshot of this man in his pocket, walked into a police station and said, have you ever come across this guy? And they went through all the files and they said, yes, this is Ramon Macada. He killed people in the Civil War. <laughs> I mean, you can't make this up. You can't. That's why it's so funny. Yeah, it is funny. It is, well, in a way, it's, it's horrible, but uh, it's it has its. I mean, the, I think probably the the well, the funniest thing in the book was the Archduke Franz Ferdinand actually, because he was a I mean, an almost psychotic hunter, and he had game books where he recorded killing two hundred and seventy nine thousand things, you know, which flew or walked or whatever, crawled, and in one palace he had thirty six thousand heads on the walls of things, animals, and. On the drive down, finally, to go to Sarajevo for his official visit, 
the day before, he stopped the car in the woods because he'd seen a cat, so he took his rifle out and killed the cat. That was the last thing he killed. And then his, he and his wife arrived in Sarajevo, in fact, the night before. They stayed in a hotel outside it. And they looked at the carpets and prayer rugs and thought, God, they're nice. Where did these come from? And they said, well, there's a special Turkish shop in Sarajevo. So they organised a late-night shopping trip and came back with armfuls of carpets to take home. And then the next day they made their official entrance and were shot dead. And that was well, a chapter of accidents too, wasn't it? Yeah, because well, the car had no reverse gear. I've seen the car, it's in the Military History Museum in, um, in Vienna, along with his uniform and everything, and the guns and the bombs. And uh, the thing about the car was, when they took a wrong turning, the car didn't have a reverse gear, so they had to do a very complex, slow turn to turn it round. And then Princip shot him, and her. Did you, um, did you decide, I think you've just said that you decided that the NKVD would be the people not to get on the wrong side of if they decided to kill God, you. God, no. Horrible. I mean, just unbelievable. I mean, how they can... I mean, you know, most of them were originally from Lithuania for all sorts of reasons, and how they could just, you know, really turn themselves into, say, a, a Costa Rican and then insinuate themselves into the Costa Rican diplomatic service and then do a few years at the Vatican and then get posted to Belgrade in order to kill Tito... Just these series of deceptions. And then psycho they had teams of psychologists who would look at the target and they would say, well, we'll test if, he, if he's used to taking gifts from strangers. So then, I don't know, you give somebody a box of chocolates like an exiled Ukrainian nationalist. And then the next gift blows you in half because they've tested that you will take a gift. Never accept a gift from me, Jeremy. No, I won't. Don't you worry. <laughs> Not that there's any danger of that. No, there's not. <laughs> That's how they were going to kill Tito. But then Stalin died, so they cancelled the mission. And Tito died in his bed, didn't he? Yeah, he did. Yeah, I mean, he died quite naturally, as did Stalin. But they were going to give him a gift of jewellery or something, or watches in a box, and it would have opened up and poisoned him. Gas. It is amazing, isn't it, if you think about it, that Hitler wasn't assassinated. Uh, well, there were lots of attempts. The one I deal with in the book, because everybody knows about the aristocratic bomb, bomb plotters, the Johnny-come-latelys of the upper classes in 1944, but actually a very obscure... I won't call it... You know, he wasn't actually a formal communist, but his sympathies were on the left. But, again, one of the most lethal forms of assassin is always a, a craftsman, a skilled craftsman, you know, who've got patience and they make things. And he spent about three weeks' worth of nights building a bomb into a column behind a podium where Hitler was talking. And for once in his life, he stopped talking early to go and plan the invasion of France and left. And about six or seven minutes later, the podium was just blown apart, killing, you know, half a dozen people. And he would have died. And that's in November 1939. Was he just lucky? Totally lucky. I mean, he would have been blown to pieces. It was in, in the beer cellar, and of course, because he was with his old mates, you know, his original followers, the security was minimal because they're not going to try and kill him. So there was hardly any security about. He just left early. And if you think, I mean, as I point out in the book, you know, that from when that happened down to 1944, I think two and a half million German troops died in the war. And then after 1944, I think another 4.5 million of them were killed because the fighting got really nasty you know, the closer the Russians came. And uh, all those people might not have died. 
Most of these people who are assassins, though, are loners, aren't they? They're, they're odd people. Yeah. No, no, definitely. That's, that's one of the things. Basically, I think the way I sort of conceive of the book is it's like, it's like uh, and why I hope the book people want to read it is because it's like a series of hunting stories. And if you think of Frederick Forsyth's Day of the Jackal, which I ripped off of the title, it's two hunting stories because it's the killer tracking down de Gaulle and then it's the policeman tracking down the killer. So it combines, you know, if you think we're basically hunter-gatherers in our deep psyche, that's what appeals to, that's why this is interesting. And I'll tell you, where, I'll tell you two films where you can see this. One, one, you might even know the bloke who made it. There was a BBC filmmaker called Alan Clark, who did films like Scum and The Firm with Gary Oldman. But he made a 38-minute short film about Northern Ireland called Elephant. And it just consists of, the reconstruction using a steady cam of 18 terrorist murders in Northern Ireland. So all you see are men walking quite slowly into a taxi firm or a warehouse or a swimming bars and shooting somebody. And then the camera lingers on the dead body. And then we move on to the next walking person. And he does it 18 times in 38 minutes. That's, you know, and that is exactly like stalking something. And then the other thing, which is um, I saw quite recently, actually, is a Italian um, sort of, drama about prosecutors of the mafia called Il Cacciatore, the hunter. And it's about two kids who learn to shoot boar and the older one teaches the younger one. The older one becomes a mafia hitman, the younger one becomes a top prosecutor. And the way he, and this is based on a real man, a real man's memoirs, he tracks down like over 380 members of the Corleone crime family, including all the fugitive big bosses, and puts them away, but he actually explicitly applies things he learnt boar hunting. Not shooting, but just how you'd approach it. Did, did you ever read Rogue Mail? Jeffrey yeah, no, I did. I saw that there was a very good, I think it was the BBC, actually, because it was, you know, it was when I was a kid, I suspect, the guy going with a rifle to shoot Hitler. Yeah. Although, actually, rifles are not often used in assassination, and people frequently rule them out. It's only, I think, because of America with Oswald and um, James Earl Ray and Martin Luther King that, that people have this image of someone with a rifle. But actually, most assassins put rifles to one side. I don't know why, but they do. They like handguns, knives or bombs. What would you choose? Oh, <laughs> uh, I wouldn't... Prob well, probably a bomb, actually, rather than a handgun or a knife, because I'd get caught or killed with, with either of those. Yeah. It's a strange thing, though. It, do you think that assassination is a particularly un-British activity? Well, I mean, I'm not a British historian. I've never really written about or studied it since I was about 21, so I'm not the best person to ask. But, uh, I mean, it's, it seems to be quite rare in Britain because, you know, Spencer Percival was the only Prime Minister to be killed by a... He was, yeah. yeah. May the 11th, 1812. That's right. Well, the, he was a trader who'd been imprisoned in Russia for fraud and he had a grievance and killed him, shot him in the lobby of the Commons. But, I mean, certainly, you know, if you look at... If you think most assassinations are by states, I mean, as far as I know, and I could be completely wrong, the last time any British politician suggested killing somebody to SIS was in the case of Idi Amin, and the then head of SIS sort of got up to his full height and said, we don't do that sort of thing. And there was yeah. no. Uh, so I don't think we actually do it. It's just that I was reading a, a Sherlock Holmes the other day, The Adventures of the Bruce Partington Plans, where yeah. Holmes 
sneers at the pedestrian uselessness of the average homegrown criminal for not knowing how to use a London pea super. In the yeah. countries of assassination, it's they don't have fog, you see. Yeah. That's a good point. I hadn't, I hadn't thought of that one. That's a new one to me. I'll, I'll be looking that up tonight, the fog. Um, no, I think, I mean, what, what's interesting also that I found actually quite fascinating was, as you say, a lot of these people are erratic loners. It's the sheer zigzag movements they're making because assassination is not, not like murdering your partner or, you know, whatever, where it can often be a spur of the moment, except in, in Midsummer Murders, that is. Assassinations, you have to really plan it because, uh, you know, the targets are on the whole well defended. And, uh, you know, you've got to think about this. But it's, it's the extraordinary journey and their sort of what they're doing from month to month. And, where, and it's almost like they're getting into a zone or psyching themselves up. Plus, they're planning their escape. I mean, Oswald was clearly planning on getting a bus. He couldn't drive, by the way. He was planning on getting the bus down to Mexico. That, that was where he was, was when he shot the policeman. And then James Earl Ray, who was on the run from the 20-year sentence for bank robbery, he had the most incredible you know, fake identities, fake passports to get to Canada, and he wanted to end up in South Africa with his sort of racist friends in South Africa. In fact, he was picked up at Heathrow Airport. He robbed a... He robbed a, he robbed a um, what do you call it? A building society in Fulham of 135 quid. <laughs> just to top up his depleted funds. And then he went out of Heathrow. When he showed his passport to the desk officer at Heathrow, the, the, the guy noticed he had another passport inside his jacket. So he said, excuse me, sir, you have to come with us. So then they took him away. And by that time, the Canadian Mounties had been through all sorts of passport applications because they knew he was in Canada. And they, um, they sent over the details that this man was James Earl Ray. So then two London detectives said, well, we gather you're James Earl Ray and the game's up. They probably they did quit. say the game's up too. Yeah, they probably did. Um, but I mean, he's a horrible individual. I mean, oh my God. And he broke out of prison several times. I mean, he got out of prison. His whole family was sort of, were like a sort of... Um, eugenicist dream of poor white trash. They were all criminals. Every one of his family were criminals. For maybe a hundred years going back. Professional criminals. They're all men, the people you've mentioned. Oh, I didn't oh, know. Yeah, no, no, no. Yeah. Caridad Makada. She was an assassin. The, the, one, the, the one who was outside with the getaway car with Trotsky. She killed people. They are on the whole men, yeah. Why is that, do you think? I don't know. My wife said, this book won't appeal to half the human race, Michael. She said, can't you write a book with more appeal to women? <laughs> I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? 
All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. Why have you written this book? I mean, it's very much unlike your usual works. Uh, no, it's not. No, that, I wouldn't say that. I wrote a book called Small Wars, Faraway Places, which was about um, third world insurgencies in the Cold War. Actually, the reason I wrote it is very simple, because the dates of the book are 1945 to 65. And the, the way I got the idea for it was, you know, I was born in 1955, and I thought, well, what the hell do you know about the 10 years before you were born? And then the only historical memories I've got from the period 55 to 65 are Churchill's funeral and Kennedy being shot, actually. They're the only two public events I can remember. Obviously, I remember sort of bashing my forehead on a pot or something, but that's the only thing. So I thought, well, this is a very blank couple of decades for me, so I'll write this. You know, it's just the way it goes. And this, this just... I mean, I have to say, this was the most fun book I've written in my life, and I've written 14 of them. I sprang out of bed every day to get down to it. Aren't you pretty sick of university life now? No, I, well, I did it till I was about 45, and then, you know, because my books had been doing very well, and et cetera, et cetera, I thought, well, I'll just write for a living, and it, it, it sort of worked. Although in the last last year or so, I mean, I've gone back to the to the LSE's internal think tank. It has a sort of, it's got no students, but it's a think tank that specialises in diplomacy, foreign affairs, etc. And that sort of suits me. Yeah, university life is pretty sick-making in a way. It's all those bloody committees where the people with the least intelligence have the most to say. <laughs> and they're very politically correct, aren't they? Well, no, actually, uh, look, look. First of all, the LSE, oddly enough, despite what the average sort of, you know, thicko says about it, is by far the most politically pluralistic institution I've ever worked in. So, like, UKIP was founded by one of my colleagues when I was back there, Alan Sked. And then, you know, David Starkey was one of my colleagues. Ken Minogue, who formed the Bruges Group, they were all there. So it's not some sort of great nest of lefties. In fact, it's quite the contrary. So, you know, it's quite a good place to work. And Michael Oakeshott, the great conservative uh, philosopher, he was there when I was there. And there's a lot of, lot of people like that. All the great right-wingers I know were all at the LSE. Yeah, that's interesting, isn't it? Like who? Yeah. Sked would be one. Yeah. Um, I think probably Oakeshott. Yeah. Although I only know Oakeshott by repute. Yeah, yeah. Eli Kaduri, who wrote about the Middle East. I mean, he's a ferocious right-wing and very clever man. There were a lot. Karl Popper. You know, they're all there. Do you think the book should have had pictures? I think it would have been a good idea. Yeah. The thing is that so many of the pictures are so totally well-known, you know, like Oswald 
you know, being shot or the, yeah. the police holding his rifle up above their heads. That's a famous picture. There's lots of... And then the ones which I would like to have used, like when the Russian ambassador to Turkey was shot dead by an off-duty policeman a year ago in an art gallery. It's just a very vivid image of this man, you know, saying Allahu Akbar with a pistol and the guy's on the floor with blood coming out of him. You couldn't use an image like that on a book cover. You could use it inside. Yeah, you could. It's a very dramatic series of photographs. Um, uh, the most amazing thing I saw in Mexico City was the was Trotsky's accommodation and bed, the bed in which he was sleeping, and so on. Yeah, 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 yeah. That's amazing. Yeah, yeah. they turned it. I mean, they, they turned the place into a fortress. That's what's interesting. I mean, there were two big attempts to kill him. One was a an operation which was actually led by Mexico's most famous mosaic artist. I mean, he really is a very famous artist called Sequeros, David Sequeros. And that was a gun attack where about 20 people went into the house with machine guns. And he just and his wife dived on the floor and the bullets went over his head in the bedroom. And then the next time round, it was much more up close and personal. Somebody came in and said, would, have you, would you like to read this article I've written about you know, political economy? And as he went down to read it, he got whacked in the head. Yeah, never read an article about political economy. economy. No, <laughs> never read anything <laughs> by a friend. <laughs> I don't know. Um, you haven't asked me whether, whether I think that these things change the course of history. Okay, do they change the course of history? Well, Disraeli in 1865, just after Lincoln was killed, he said no. You know, he said assassination has never changed the course of history. He actually said that. But, I mean, that was wrong even in 1865 because, you know, the the vice president who replaced Lincoln, Andrew Johnson, was a slave owner and he sort of backpedalled on all the things that, that Lincoln had wanted to do with African-American emancipation and he set the whole thing back by decades. So I would blame him. Disraeli was wrong. I think Disraeli was very wrong. And look, look, go back to the original assassination, which I start off with, which I found absolutely fascinating. That's as Julius a, Caesar. Well, yeah, as a, I was a complete beginner with that one. I mean, God, the last time I looked at ancient history was 40 years ago, more maybe. But that was clearly an elite-level conspiracy. And, you know, Caesar was not an emperor. And it meant the end of the Roman Republic, which had been around for seven or eight hundred years, it stopped. And then you had 450 years of emperors. I mean, that's a hell of a change. So Disraeli was wrong. Assassinations, successful assassinations, yeah, have consequences, but most of them are not successful, are they? No, 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 most of them, mercifully. I mean, what I, what I was very interested in is why, you know, why there, it's like sort of waves. So an obvious one is in the early modern period with wars of religion, where they thought if we kill the ruler, who's the wrong confession, we can then change the confessional nature of the entire country, which is why Philip II was, you know, offering cash bounties to kill Elizabeth I or William the Silent in the Netherlands. I mean, the assassins were working to get the money. And in William the Silent's case, they succeeded. So that's one big wave of political murder, you know. Gunpowder Plot is a very good example of it, of, you know, blowing away uh, a Protestant king in order to, to put Catholics back on the throne. That's, that's what was going on. And uh, the next big wave, after a hiatus, a long hiatus, where rulers sort of decided it's actually dishonourable to do this, it's sneaky and dishonourable and we shouldn't do it. I mean, like Philip II's grandson 
when he had the chance to assassinate somebody, he said, oh, no, 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 we don't do that. That's deplorable. You know, they really did. They changed their minds about that. This is when? Uh, in the 17th century, this, by then, they had decided that you didn't go around assassinating, partly because they discovered you could judicially murder somebody, your opponents. You put them on trial and killed them that way. It's easier. <laughs> go through the forms, as it were. And then the next big surge is in the late 19th century with you know anarchists, nihilists, nationalists, terrorists, etc., who killed a phenomenal number of um, heads of state and people. Um, you know, that really is a big spike. Um, like Tsar Alexander II, you know, he was blown up in the middle of the street. But then, you know, in his case, I mean, there's a, a man who was a reformer in his life and then is replaced by the most hardline, um, his hardline 36-year-old son, Alexander III, who, say no more, he's Putin's favourite Tsar, Alexander III. He's put up about eight statues to him because he was an ultra-nationalist. He was a man who, by the way, entertained his children by ripping packs of playing cards in half with his own hands. He was very strong. I've never tried that, but I imagine it takes a lot of strength. I think it's very difficult. Yeah, but he did with his hands. <laughs> Tough bloke. Um, anyway, and then obviously I bring that, that bit to, to, to end with Franz Ferdinand, and uh, you know, which may or may not have profound consequences and then I go again into an era of extreme ideological hostility and divisiveness which is in the 30s and 40s where people have been knocked off all over the place often by governments. Is there any one of these assassins you would care to be locked in a room with assuming he wasn't trying to assassinate you? Oh yeah 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 I'd love to have I'd love to have met Ramon Mercada just because it's so professional. It's just such an extraordinary story. I would have been interested in him. I can't think many of the others, actually. I don't think um, they would have made very entertaining. Certainly not Lee Harvey Oswald, who was a monomaniacal bore, believe me. <laughs> uh, you know, I've, had a, I've, looked, I've spent a long time pondering that one. And actually, I, I did it by... I, if you look at the chapter, I did it by comparison, which is I thought, well, look, we... We know that there were 33 attempts to kill Charles de Gaulle, OK, 33 attempts. And the French police and secret services are damn good at what they do. And they unravelled all of these plots. The people made no bones about being involved in them. They often got pissed in bars and said, look, I tried to kill de Gaulle, you know, great. So that was, you know, you can see clearly that some angry generals in Madrid or Rome organised these attacks and they got tough guys, paratroopers and foreign legionaries to carry them out, you know, which is what the Day of the Jackal picks up on. But when you come to Kennedy, you know, given the vast interest in it, I have not read one thing which suggests there was actually a conspiracy, not one thing. And everything falls apart when you look at it. Just, you know, it, it didn't happen. And the clincher, in a way, is what he did about um, six or seven months before um, the attack on Kennedy, because he used exactly the same rifle to off a very right-wing um, former general called Edwin Walker, who was sitting in his house doing his tax returns one night at eight o'clock. And a bullet came into the room through the window, but it got deflected by the wooden window pane, so it only grazed his arm. And uh, that was Oswald, using the same rifle he used to shoot Kennedy six or seven months later and everything when you look at it sort of falls apart for example in in the famous Zabruder footage you know the short film clip the guy with the cine camera made there's a man in a suit on the sidewalk 
opening an umbrella and you know people like Oliver Stone say oh well he was signalling to a load of hidden shooters on the grassy knoll no he wasn't he was a sort of uh, anti-Kennedy bloke who was making a protest about Kennedy's father Joe the former ambassador to Britain who was an archer Pisa hence the umbrella Chamberlain umbrella and he just opened the umbrella to make his point. He wasn't signalling to anybody. And in fact, the FBI subsequently tracked him down. And he said, it's amazing what people have loaded up on top of me just making a very private, obscure protest. By and large, though, the assassins don't have happy endings, do they? No. I mean, a lot of the early ones, I mean, they're monstrously tortured. <laughs> Which is how you... Very odd, actually. But, I mean, you can... I looked at uh, Francois Raviac, who stabbed to death Henri IV of France. And, you know, thanks to three weeks of torture, you know an awful lot about what was going on in his mind. They dragged it all out of him. Uh, so, and, and you'd never know that much about a very obscure figure like him unless he had been tortured, if you see what I mean. I'm anti-torture, don't worry. Uh, but, no, a lot of them obviously got killed in the act. Or not. And a lot of them can't face going back home. No, they're fleeing. They're not going... Ramon Mercador, he didn't go back to, to, uh, to Russia, did he, after assassinating Trotsky? Uh, no, he didn't. I think he died of... Um, his died his mother did. He's buried in Russia. But he died in Cuba. Yeah, that's quite right. Lung cancer. Big smoker. Um... <laughs> But no, 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 I think most of them uh, meet pretty bad, um, pretty bad fates. I mean, some of them do. I mean, the man who shot the Pope, who was actually, a, you know, um, the Turkish guy, Me Mehmed Ali Adja. That's it. He, um, you know, he did serve a long prison sentence. And then he wasn't all that old, actually, when they sent him back to Turkey. He was in his early 50s. And then they jailed him again for dodging military service. But I mean, he wrote an autobiography about his... Um, you know why he did it when I used that I took that one actually and made a thing of it because you know you're old enough like me to know this that that at the time and for many years afterwards you know they they journalists fingered the CIA uh, the Russian KGB and the Bulgarians etc which of course you would have believed at the height of the Cold War and nobody was interested in Islamism in 1981 you know who the hell knew about Islamism whereas actually when you look into him he was a sort of Islamo-fascist. I mean, he was a an Islamic Nazi, for want of a better, better term. And yeah. that really was why he shot the Pope. It wasn't the Russians or the, the Bulgarians, but everyone, everybody... And, of course, a lot of the journalists and authors who wrote about it were directly linked to the CIA. I mean, they were just guided pens. Do you... What, what conclusions do you come to about the people who have to keep leaders safe? What's the prime bit of advice? Um, well, the most fearsome ones I've ever been in the room were with actually with Netanyahu and Ehud Barak. I went to a conference in Israel. And my God, I mean, they have about 20 blokes and they're some of the toughest looking bastards you've ever clapped eyes on. You know, and they're just literally looking in every direction. There's a couple yeah. who are very close security. I imagine they would just embrace him or put him on the floor or something or rush him out but you know they'll kill you at the drop of a hat that's what you need if you're if you're a very controversial figure like him and if you're in a country which has got um you know very unfortunate um 
I mean, I should should make this point about the book, which is another thing that interested me, that, that the Caesar killing was an elite group of senators, I mean, a big group. Yes. But if you look at Lincoln, it's a tiny group, some of whom may not even have been aware that killing him was what they were in for. They might have been thinking something else was going to happen. But the point is, rather like um, the people, the man who shot um, Yitchak Rabin, they could plausibly have claimed that at least half the population thought what they did was a bloody good thing. I mean, the people who killed Lincoln, there would have been a lot of Southerners who would have rejoiced. This, this is a democratisation of assassination, isn't it? Yeah, no, very much so. And there would have been a, there would have been a lot, lot of uh, religious or right-wing um, Zionists who would have certainly have welcomed Rabin, who they regarded as a Nazi. You know, they had posters up of him in Nazi uniform and... They, or they thought he was like a sort of... They put a Palestinian kafir around his neck in photos, and they wanted him dead. It's quite murderous. But they could plausibly claim, you know... That, I mean, right now, after Netanyahu has almost lost power, although, you know, I'll believe, believe it when I see it, a lot of the opposition politicians are getting death threats on the phone at home and everything, you know, saying, watch out we'll, from the Kud people, we'll come and get you. I mean, it's a pretty febrile atmosphere there. Yeah, well, you're welcome to it. No, well, no, I've got no intentions of going there whatsoever. <laughs> One of, joining the many countries I can no longer visit. I mean, not that I ever really wanted to go to Saudi Arabia, but I really did. Uh, I've really burnt my bridges with that one. I can tell you, <laughs> in a major way. Uh, I got some very. Um, I, I wrote a couple of articles. I think in the Times actually about MBS and his bullshit modernisation schemes. I mean, long before he killed Khashoggi. And, uh, you know, I got incredible sort of death threats in Arabic on my Twitter feed with my face on it and everything. You know, these are nasty bastards. And that was long before Khashoggi. And then after that, I did a big piece, I think it was in the Mail, which had the headline, Mohammed the Murderer. So I certainly won't be going to, I won't be going to Saudi Arabia. But what a shame. <laughs> well, you look after yourself. And you. Is that it? We're finished. Do you enjoy doing this, Jeremy? Do you like doing it? You well, I fun? quite like having conversations with people. I listened to the one with Alistair Campbell. I thought that was very interesting. Did you know him before? Yeah, I've met him a few yeah. times. And then I like the one with David Runciman, because he's a smart bloke. He's very Probably. smart, isn't he? Isn't he? Yeah. Talking yeah. to you clever clogs only convinces me that I'm very stupid. Well, I don't know about that. Come on. When I think of you, it's not, not University Challenge, which I hardly ever watch, sorry, and it's not a set-piece big clashes on Newsnight. I, you know, I remember them, but it's not that. What I really vividly remember when I was about 17 or 18 was you reporting from Northern Ireland for a long time on television. And that ought to I, fit... When you have your obituary written, that should figure a lot bloody, you know, more prominently, I think, than anything else. I've never been as scared as I was there. No, I know. I've had exactly that experience. I was terrified. Yeah. No, I know. And it was very violent then, yeah. Yeah, funny things happening. But how long did you do that for? I did that for um, about ten years. What, in Northern Ireland? Yeah, 1917-17. I used to come and go from Northern Ireland for about three years and then about four years before that. So about seven, I suppose. And that was all over it, not just in Belfast? And yes, yeah. Funny place, isn't it? Nothing seems to change. I think things have changed, you know. I think that uh, the revolution got middle-aged. 
Yeah, and all those true. people yeah. like Adams and the rest of them, they got yeah. to the point where they didn't want to see their children going through it, uh, yeah, leading the lives true. they led. Well, look, good to you. Right, Take care uh, of yourself with all this. Yeah, see, see you soon somewhere. Yeah, I hope so, yeah. Well, there you are, Michael Burley, historian of many things, and now of the ungentle art of political assassination. Do give him a read if that sounds like your thing. Next week, it's one for Line of Duty fans. We've got the writer, Jed Mercurio. Do join us for that. And until next time, enjoy the sunshine. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.